The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemertas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Welcome back to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. In this episode, I speak to Chris Milne, the CFO at Orbital Marine Power. Orbital Marine is a company pioneering tidal energy at a time when climate change is high on everyone's agenda. And with the right backing, it could become a case of being in exactly the right place at the right time. One of the many reasons I was so excited to catch up with Chris for our podcast. Before joining Orbital, Chris worked with SSE Generation and Scottish Renewables. So he very much built his career in the energy sector. With so much experience in that sector of raising funds and building businesses that are both economically sound and commercially rewarding, Chris gave some great insights. He talked about the importance of finding early stage market support when building your business so you can look for bigger investment as soon as you're ready to scale. Uh, The benefits of crowdfunding, how it reduces risk for potential investors and increases market visibility, especially if you're creating that market yourself. And how the key to becoming a great CFO is to work hard and genuinely enjoy what you're doing. I've been really looking forward to speaking to Chris. I'm personally really excited to see tidal energy finally becoming a reality. And he is clearly very passionate about it as well. If you're in finance or if you're interested in renewables, I'm sure you're going to get some fascinating insights from today's episode. So uh, people who know me might know that I'm interested in tidal energy. And uh, so I'm really excited to have Chris Milne, who's on the podcast today, who is the CFO of Orbital Marine. Uh, Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. Now, this is the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. So uh, we always like to start off to find out a little bit about you and your background, the sort of steps you've taken to get to the position you're in now and key milestones and stepping stones. Could you just talk us through your career to date? Of course, Stephen. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll try and be brief. I'll try not to bore the listeners. Uh, I started off, you know, fairly uh, conventional, as many uh, CFOs or finance directors have. Big four trained with KPMG. I was quite fortunate, though, um, in in some ways, but in some perspectives. I started off in St Albans, so lovely part of the world. Obviously, not where I'm from originally. So uh, sort of seduced by the bright lights of uh, London and uh, Greater London. But the, the one of the benefits of being in the smaller office of KPMG was, you know, you got the you, you got the bigger experience, the wider experience, sort of seeing whole parts of whole organizations, whole companies. You weren't sort of stuck doing debtors in a big multinational for the first three years of your training. Now that was quite important for me because, you know, the reality was, you know, I, I really didn't know exactly what path I wanted my career to take at that point in time. You know, I knew it was in business. Like many people, I knew that finance was the backbone of business. And I knew that that was sort of the right uh, the right grounding for many directions that my career could take. 
So I spent time there. I moved into corporate finance again. You know, I was similar to a magpie. You know, attracted by the bright lights of doing the deals and uh, the sort of uh, excitement that sort of surrounded that area of the business. I was very fortunate. I was in the private equity team in London for a few years, about Milton Keynes and London. Really, that's when I started to realise that uh, you know I had a huge amount of admiration for people who had you know effectively built something people who'd actually created something tangible with their hard work and their effort. Now, one thing that uh, you know, I think anybody who's worked with me would certainly uh, say that I was not short of was hard work, enthusiasm and effort. So I kind of felt that I had something that I could channel in to the right place, but I just didn't know what that right place was. I, I found the energy industry um, very, very interesting. You know, it's very complex, um, but, you know, it's critical. You know, it's something that, you know, we need. And, you know, back then, renewable renewable energy was sort of coming to the fore. It was sort of like clean tech 1.0, if you like. I'd like to think, you know, we'll come on to it. I'm sure that we're, uh, we're at a, a new phase now in terms of clean tech and emerging technologies such as Tidal. But at that point in time, I had the opportunity to join as corporate finance manager at SSE, a big UK utility. A lot of... Um, renewable assets, uh, but at the same time, you know, a lot of old coal and gas back then as well. I really enjoyed my time there. You know, one of the things that SSE taught me was you know, there's no there's no substitute for doing things. You know, experience counts. You know, throw yourself into things. Do take on all opportunities that come. At the end of the day, you know, not, not everything will ever work out exactly how you think it's going to, but everything will bring you some some level of value, some level of experience, some level of benefit. So, you know, I remember sitting around some some meetings with bankers and things with SSE, you know, people would go around the table and talk about, you know, what they'd done, where they'd been, the roles they'd had. And again, you know, I thought, God, you know, here was me thinking I'd, I'd sort of made a good start, you know, I'd spent seven years, eight years in London, but, you know, this was nothing compared to the breadth of experience that I could see some people had. So it very much incentivized me and, you know, inspired me really throw myself into things, really get as much experience under my belt as I could. I Latterly, I was sort of finance director for the uh, the generation and uh, the oil and gas business. So um, at this point, you know, my, 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 my focus, I suppose, was starting to narrow. I was starting to sort of understand an area of the market, a part of the market that I really felt, a, you know, a, re- a real, not affinity with, but, you know, there was something very compelling about it. You know, there was something that really did sort of grasp my interest. And at the end of the day, you need that. You know, whatever you're doing, if you're going to be enthusiastic about it, if you're going to spend the amount of time and effort that is required to do something really, really well, you need to enjoy it. And I was very conscious that as complex and as difficult and as challenging as it could be, the generation space was something that I did definitely find. I, I certainly got those uh, those features from it. I spent a little bit of time in private equity. You know, I was conscious that while I was getting the experience, you know, we built a business unit from scratch at SSE. Now, I shouldn't really say it being in the tidal energy now, but uh, it was an oil and gas <laughs> upstream business. But, you know, again, it was the experience of it, you know, actually being able to say there was nothing there before, but then when we'd finished, there was something there afterwards. You know, we were creating jobs, you know, there was, there was activity, we were doing something that we felt was to the benefit of the UK Generation Mix, UK PLC, and of course, SSE PLC at the time. 
So I moved into corporate finance after that. Uh, sorry, I moved into private equity after that. Again, still unsure as to what it was, but I knew that I wanted to help build something. This was a prime example of not everything working out the way you think it will. I went up to Aberdeen, you know, but the uh, I, I spent. I, I made sure I made good use of my time there. I helped uh, initiate a platform, which is now you know sort of a still an ongoing business. And I got some really good experience dealing in international jurisdictions that I had not d- been dealt with before. But, you know, family reasons, family didn't warm to Aberdeen, you know, wasn't quite what we were hoping. And that's one of the things, you know, sometimes things aren't going to work out. But, but at this point, my focus sort of changed. And, you know, I was very keen that, you know, I still, building something was for me. Getting into something at the ground level and helping create something was very important. And at that point in time, or I seen Orbital's technology. And I thought, and I'm, I'm an informed observer of the generation space. Marine Energy had and ha, had struggled commercially, and I seen the technology, and I thought, "Wow, why has nobody done it like this before?" Of course, this is how you make tidal energy competitive with all the renewable technologies. This is how you make it commercially viable. And you know, the experience that I had from you know deal doing from corporate finance commercial experience in big companies like PSSC, private equity experience, fundraising, all of this sort of just, just fitted. And I felt that it was something that I could bring my experience to and my enthusiasm to. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted to say, you know, five, almost five years down the line now, you know, we've, we've made some great strides and fantastic progress that we're very proud of, but uh, the job's not done yet. Yeah. Uh, funny you say that about uh, when you saw the technology, because I had the same reaction when you see that, you know, instantly you think, yeah, that, well, I can see how that works and why it's such a good idea. Perhaps you, for, for people who aren't uh, familiar with this, perhaps you could just try and briefly describe what the, uh, well, your latest, the, the Orbital O2. Of course, uh, thanks, like. Stephen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think to give context, it's maybe just thinking, you know, I, I, I made the point there of saying that tidal energy has failed to deliver much commercial success up to this point. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is, um, you know, the technologies before us, many people have tried to go down the, the, the concept of essentially marinizing a wind turbine. So, you know, people effectively looked at the problem. You know, you've got a resource, you've got a tidal resource, a kinetic energy flowing in one direction, then the other. And they thought, right, it's a horizontal axis turbine. What do we need to do here? Ah, it's a wind, it's, a, it's just like a wind turbine, but it's under the water. But of course, anything out at sea, and in particular, anything on the seabed, is hugely costly. You know, there's a huge amount of cost in construction. There's a huge amount of cost in operations. And if something goes wrong, more than you think it is, that cost mounts up and your project economics can only take so much. And effectively, that's exactly what many previous participants in the industry found. You know, the project IRRs simply couldn't withstand the uh, the costs of uh, deploying and maintaining the t- their technologies not unless you were going to be getting something like 500, 600 pounds per megawatt hour. And no government around the world sees that as a palatable number. Nobody is going to support the technology at that cost, even if it's just a starting cost. Even if you're going to get it down or half it, it's too expensive. And that's very much how I'd seen marine energy myself until I seen Orbital. So Orbital effectively looks at the problem very differently. It's almost like a ship in reverse. So it's almost like a boat. So we, we, you know, all our construction is onshore. 
in safe, clean shipbuilding style facilities or any fabrication yard. Uh, you know, we specifically design it to be compatible with manufacturing in any fabrication yard or sort of shipbuilding facility at any coast of the UK or indeed the world. Our structure effectively has two legs which come off it. When the legs are down, the turbines, two blades on each uh, on each leg, the turbines are effectively turned. Rather than propelling a ship through the water, the structure is held geostationary and the tide turns the blades. That energy is then converted. All the equipment, all the converter equipment and everything is actually within the hull. And effectively, the energy just flows in reverse. So, you know, the ship, geostationary, energy flow back to shore. The legs come up so that we can access it. So, you know, 90, 95, 98% of problems that are ever going to happen during the lifetime of the asset. We can send guys out in a speedboat, the operations team go out, they get in the turbine, they fix it, they come away again. Our costs will be, uh, operational costs are compatible with onshore wind because whether you put the guys in a boat or in a van and travel 45 minutes to get to the site it's the same kit inside it's the same equipment that's being repaired same fuses that need swapped out it's roughly the same problem so we you know the problem is approached in a very different way and because the cost and the downtime is so low even if we are wrong in our assumptions say something goes pop three times a year instead of two times a year and let's face it it will even wind turbines with gigawatts of, of installed capacity around the world, things still need to be fixed and replaced. It just happens. It's a feature of engineering. But if we are wrong, the, the impact on our project and the IRR is minimal. Uh, you know, we can, we can bear it. That's what makes this technology the key that can unlock tidal resources and tidal energy around the globe. Yeah, that's a great description. Thanks, Chris. And anybody that's listening who can't imagine what that looks like, I'm sure I heard somebody singing Yellow Submarine because it does kind of look like one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, a, a common comparison, yes. Yeah, yeah. Take a look at the uh, Orbital Marine website and you can see see it there. It's a, a fabulous thing and all using kind of established technology, but just in a in a way which is a bit of a light bulb moment when you see yeah. it. So, yeah, I, I mean, take, taking the analogy a bit further, I mean, obviously I compared it to shipbuilding there. I mean, the other thing that I like to uh, point out is, you know, it's fabricated metal. Uh, you know, we've got turrets, we've got umbilicals. You know, the, the uh, it just so happens that it's electrons that's going back to shore rather than hydrocarbons. You know, the, the construction challenges, the operational challenges, and the health and safety challenges, the engineering challenges over all of those things, they're all, they've all been challenge they've all been tackled and beaten by the oil and gas industry so in terms of oil and gas industry players you know in terms of one having one eye on the energy transition this you know when we when we could show that we've got the, the, the market and that this is commercially viable it's quite an easy step for a lot of these players in terms of a first step towards the energy transition and a move towards renewable energy because it's doing a lot of the things that these guys already do it's as i said it's just electrons rather than hydrocarbons. Yeah, so, so all of that being said, tidal, as you say, still has a bit of a history of being expensive and, and so on. So although you, know, you solved a lot of those problems, no doubt when you're trying to finance something like this, you, know, you, you meet a certain amount of um, challenge and, and, and so on. Uh, and you've managed to raise finance both from uh, public sector in, term, in uh, grants and, and so on and from the private sector as well. What have you sort of prioritised that, and what sort of challenges have you had in financing the business up to this point? 
Well, yes. Um, you know, so one of the key things that sort of makes this a little bit even more challenging is that, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's hardware that we're developing at the moment. It's expensive hardware, you know, but the, the it's, it's capital intensive because, and partly because, you know, the global prize is huge. So, you know, the you, venture capital funds, you know, and, there, and there's plenty of them, a lot of them are focused on pretty small check sizes. You know, for something, for a technology like this, you're not really talking about pretty small check sizes. You know, you, you're needing an investor that has both vision and a balance sheet or a big fund. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been reasonably successful. You know, the business since its inception, it was on a bit of a slow burn until sort of 2015, 16. Andrew Scott, the CEO, joined in 2015. He brought me in in 2016. Now, I like to think that we've sort of accelerated things a, a reasonable amount. The business itself has raised 70 million, seven zero of investment. We've probably invested around 60 million of that. We've, so we've still got, we've still got uh, gas in the tank, so to speak, to use a hydrocarbon analogy. And, you know, we've, we've got, you know, we, but we've got that money earmarked and we will need to raise more money to supplement what we are doing with the remaining funds. Of the 70 million, around half of that has been in the form of equity. And, you know, there's been various different uh, raises at different points in the company's history. Most recently, we've raised £3 million this year at a pre-money value of uh, just over £40 million. You know, that's uh, that's hopefully uh, a drop in the ocean compared to what this business is going to be worth in a few years' time. Of the remainder of it, you know, we raised £7 million of uh, project finance, which I know is something that you can speak speak about late, uh, later on, uh, which was on uh, Abundance, the ethical investment platform. I think we've got over uh, 2,300 investors into our debenture. Uh, we've also raised equity on Crowdcube. We've got over 3,000 investors, uh, equity investors from Crowdcube. And the rest has been in the form of capital grants and R&D grants. And what we found is, you know, and certainly in the latter years, we've had to be as, as innovative with our fundraising and financing as we've been with the, the technology itself. It's not easy because one of the key things, you know, we... Andrew and I went round to you know, a lot of potential investors. I actually focused primarily initially around the oil and gas space around 2017 because you know we could see that you know the energy transition was being talked about, but we were just too early. You know, at that point in time, it was just being talked about more than actually actioned, and you know people liked what we were doing. You know, almost invariably, I, you know, unanimously, I would say there was an appreciation of the technology what it could bring to the global energy market and the UK market. But the key thing, the key thing every single time was, you know, people don't want to build one machine. The types of people with the checks, with the ability to sign the checks that we were looking for, they were wanting to build 10, 50, 100 turbines. That's the type of capital they were looking to deploy. And that's still the case. There is an abundance, uh, pardon the pun for using abundance of investors, there's an abundance of investors and ESG-focused funds out there, institutional money that is looking for projects like what we can offer. But what we need before we can offer that is the early-stage market support. In the same way that wind was given this market support, in the same way that solar was given this market support, marine energy now needs the same thing. And we're very close to it. We are, we are optimistic 
we're not reliant upon, but we are optimistic that uh, there might be a carve out in the UK AR4 auction. There might be an announcement later this year. The industry is asking for 100 megawatts to be ring fenced at £250 per megawatt hour and asking for, in this, the year of COP26, that the UK government sets a leadership example and uh, creates a vision for a gigawatt of installed marine capacity in the UK through the 2030s. Now, no, that's the type of investment signal. You know, it's not hard and fast. It's a vision. That's the type of long-term vision that allows, that gets the supply chain excited. You get them engaged. They start to make investment, which means that we can help bring the levelized cost of energy down. £250 a megawatt hour, on the face of it, seems quite high. But in today's money, there was 1.3 gigawatts of capacity, offshore wind capacity, was awarded just about £200. 1.3 gigawatts. We're only asking for 100 megawatts. We've been doing a lot of levelized cost of energy reduction work with Black & Veatch under uh, the EU-funded Project Tiger. The it's effectively looking at, you know, just saying that we're going to double every doubling of capacity, we're going to reduce costs by 10%, 15%, whatever. That's not good enough. We are actually delivering a blueprint of exactly how we're going to invest in innovations, which will bring the cost of energy down. Bringing that cost of energy down, we see the cost of energy being below £100 per megawatt hour. In most regions, you know, resource obviously plays a big key, how, how, how fast the tidal speed is, but we can see costs below nuclear within 200 megawatts of installed capacity. And that's key. You know, we, we want to focus on specific areas. That will be the UK, maybe area, other areas in North Europe. And probably next on the agenda is uh, North America, and in particular, the Bay of Fundy in Canada, the force facility. These areas have enough resource to allow us to entrench a supply chain, which obviously creates export opportunities and will allow us to pull down the levelized cost of energy, which, of course, unlocks other regions and other markets around the world. Because the lower the levelized cost of energy, the more palatable it is for other governments. But also, you know, the, low, the slower speed sites, areas where the water's not deep enough to have huge blades, you know, all of a sudden, the lower the cost of energy, the more commercially viable these sites become. So you effectively create the global market by delivering your levelized cost of energy reductions in really good markets. And the UK is a fantastic market for us to do that. So, you know, given the government's, um, you know, we, we are, you know, there's been a, a lot of lobbying going on. I've been giving evidence myself to um, government parliamentary select committees. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, uh, the, uh, the energy minister, was up visiting our O2 turbine just last week getting in information from supply chain, you know, market uh, analysts, commentators, you know, people that uh, have invested in infrastructure like the European Marine Energy Centre, which has seen all, all, all forms of tidal and uh, wave devices on its facility. The information is there. We have a lot of, we have UK supply chain. So the price that our energy is sold for, a lot of that flows back into the UK supply chain which unfortunately is not something that can be said for wind and floating wind. A lot, most of that goes elsewhere. There's, you know, the, the level of job creation around those industries relative to uh, the, the spend within the UK is not a very good ratio, unfortunately. It could be better and hopefully will improve. We don't have that problem. We have around a 70 to 80% UK supply chain at this point in time. So a lot of that money will flow directly back into the UK economy to the supply chain that can then entrench themselves and create export opportunities. 
we also create long-term jobs in and around the coastal regions, which is also, you know, chimes with the government's levelling up agenda. You know, the many coastal regions have been underinvested in in uh, sort of years or decades gone by, and this gives an opportunity to bring long-term engineering, technician, project support jobs in and around those regions and in and around regions where our projects and turbines will be deployed. And of course, at no point in the last five, ten years has it been more important for the government to be seen to be doing everything it can to combat the climate crisis. And we make a, a, a significant contribution. We're not, the, we're not the only solution in town. You know, we, we can't solve all the problems. The industry has not and will not ever claim to be that. But we are one of the key options, one of the key solutions that can be deployed to help combat the climate crisis. We produce predictable, low-carbon power day and night, regardless of whether it's sunny, windy, whatever the weather, we will be there. So, you know, it, we, 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 we can and should be playing an important role. And if the government does that, that's when the big investors, they can really help us accelerate the commercial rollout and deployment of the technology. That's when they become interested. That's when we start ticking their boxes for the investment criteria. Yeah, I think we'll come on to uh, sort of scaling up a little bit later. But uh, yeah, I think there's a, a few key things there. I was going to ask you about uh, you know, government support. And we've seen that with wind and solar uh, with originally renewable obligation certificates and then feeding tariffs. And now contracts for difference. So the, the, the contracts for difference, I think, is what you were talking about there in terms of the sort of support you're looking for. And, and in all those cases, and I think with oil and gas going back a few decades or so as well, that, that uh, you know, government support helps those to get over those early stage um, technical challenges and, and um, get up the learning curve to be able to reduce costs. So Absolutely. Yeah, so Absolutely. I, and I think you're, in, in, you're involved in uh, industry bodies and things, aren't you, as well? To, uh... Uh, yes, I sit on the board of Scottish Renewables, the trade body for the renewable industry here in Scotland. So, uh, you know, delighted to have been asked to, to, to join that board. And hopefully, again, you know, hopefully it's just a another signal of, uh, pardon the pun, the turning of the tide. You know, the marine renewables uh, has a role to play. We have a seat at the table. You know, we have a lot of benefits that we can offer, you know, both societal benefits and, uh, you know, towards the energy mix. And, you know, in terms of um, you know, GDP for, uh, as I said, for UK PLC, if it's done right. Yeah. And as you, as you mentioned, the UK has great tidal flows. So I understand it's about the second biggest tidal range uh, in the world is in around the UK I and some think, parts of it um, anyway. I think the International Energy Agency, I think, estimates that the UK might have up to sort of 20% of the, uh, of the global tidal resource. Of course, you know, the available tidal resource will be driven by, you know, technology and cost. You know, you, you know there's no getting away from it. Economics will drive the success of the industry. And that's what we at Orbital believe that we've actually brought to the table here. We've brought a solution that actually makes the economics work. And, you know, that, as, as I said previously, you know, the lower that we can get the levelised cost of energy, and we believe that our solution is the way to get the lowest levelised cost of energy, the lower you can get that, the larger percentage of tidal areas become commercially viable, where you can actually harness and extract that resource at a cost that the local governments and local populations are more than willing to uh, to to pay, and ideally, you know, in time, 
you know, similar to where offshore wind appears to be aiming for, well, bottom-mounted offshore wind, you know, where they're claiming, you know, they're almost at what they claim to be subsidy-free levels. Now, of course, it's not subsidy-free because effectively what you're, you know, the CFD, it's not a subsidy or an investment, it's creating certainty, which means that you can get finance into the projects and, you know, and that's the same as us. The only reason two years ago that we were able to, um, I know we will come back to it, the only reason we were able to raise uh, money in 2017-2018 was the SR2000, our first two megawatt scale turbine, uh, had performed exceptionally well, breaking all sorts of records. We generated more power in 12 months than the entire sector had delivered in the 12 years preceding the installation of that device. You know, if that's not a step change, I don't know what is. But between that and the fact that we actually still had, we managed to get VOC accreditation. You mentioned rocks earlier, renewable obligation certificates. So we were able to energize our meter, which effectively meant it was eligible for rocks. That's how we managed to finance the O2. The O2 is only here because we were able to secure market support through that legacy regime. For a period of time, there's been no support, nothing to pick up. Without that support, we would never have raised the money that we did. That turbine would not be in the water. Look at the benefit that we've, you know, we've, we've done some jobs analysis with um, offshore renewable energy catapult, looking at both, you know, the O2 and future builds, you know, what we can bring. None of that would have been possible if it had we not managed to secure that rock accreditation. It just shows how, how important and how powerful it is to have that market signal there in, in the early days. Very critical. And we do hope that the UK government will uh, recognise that and put something back in place. And of course, it doesn't cost the government and the, and the bill payer anything if we if we can't deliver. You know, we only get we only we only manage to access that level of tariff if we deliver. And then, if we don't deliver and the project doesn't do well, then you know, nobody's going to invest in us to do another project at a lower tariff level, CFD level. So, you know, it's it's very much, you know, that it should be put out there for the government. It's a, the government needs to introduce it for the industry to respond to. You know, it's use it or lose it. And if we deliver it, and for all the reasons I said previously, the UK supply chain the levels, the long-term jobs that we'll be creating in coastal regions, the net zero benefits that we bring, if we can make it work, then it's win-win for everybody. And if we don't make it work, then the consumer and the government doesn't have to meet the tariff obligation. So, you know, it's I very much see it as a risk-free uh, very, or limited risk option for the government. There's a huge amount of upside benefit that can come. Not really sure what the downside is for them. Yes, yeah, so an element of being in the right place at the right time with the, the rocks and um, and now obviously looking for a little bit of support to, to go to the next stage. But to get to where you are now, you've raised finance through... Two crowdfunding arrangements, one with Abundance, which was a new one to me, actually. I hadn't heard of that. And uh, Crowdcube, where I am a small investor. But perhaps you could tell us a bit bit about Abundance first, because that's an interesting model, isn't it? It's debentures. Could you just give us the the rundown on that? Sure. So I I think there was two main reasons why we went to Abundance. Or sorry, two main reasons why we went to crowdfunding. And then I'll come to Abundance, who are a tremendous outfit. Um, you know, they've uh, very supportive to us, uh, great investor base. You know, really, you know, they, they are in it for the, all the right reasons. You know, the people, Louise and Mark uh, on board at, at uh, Abundance and the founders of Abundance, they are doing it 
absolutely, because they have a moral conscience and they are trying to do the right thing for society and, you know, the, the financing community. They really are stand up in that sense. We went to the crowd because of what I said previously. We need a lot of money. We had a proposition that was going to require, you know, somewhere in the region of about £20 million. We spoke to people in the UK, we spoke to people in North America, and, you know, we are, we're obviously manufacturing and delivering technology, but we're also going to be owning a project and delivering energy. So you've got project investors that want to be technology agnostic, so they didn't like the manufacturing part of the business. You've got manufacturers, and at that point, we, you know, we, we were in a project uh, to build the O2, and there was already a project partner that was doing the manufacturing. So, you know, we couldn't even offer the build to some of the investors that we were speaking to at that point in time. Manufacturers have no interest. Or generally, a lot of the shipbuilders and those types of uh, potential investors had no interest in owning electrons coming out of the project. And of course, you know, £20 million, pounds, it's a lot of money. It's a big risk for one party to carry, particularly when there's no market visibility. You know, this might be the only machine you build. You know, you're building a, you're trying to build a business, prepare a business for commercialization. But there was no signal at that point in time from the government that there was any interest in creating a market. So, you know, that 20 million was pretty, you know, it was it was fairly risky money for somebody. So again, no venture capitalists, you know, yeah, maybe a few hundred thousand, maybe a couple of million, 20 million pounds on a on a, a risky bet like that. It was just it was just too too big to swallow. So one of the ways that we looked at it, we thought, right, there's two things that we need to do here in the in the coming years. One is we need to create a bloody market. Now, we need to put all the pressure that we possibly can on the government to recognise the benefits that we can bring to the UK energy mix, to UK PLC, and make sure that they don't make the mistake that they made with wind in the 80s, where a lot of the original wind technologies actually came from the UK, but there was no market support. The Danes did support the market, and now they've got GDP of something like 8.6 billion euros a year off the back of uh, the, the wind industry. And, and actually, the UK provides a lot of that income to them. That was our prize to have, and we gave it away. We can't let that happen again. So we thought, right, the crowd is actually quite a good way for us to start spreading our message. You know, Orbital is, um, you know, hopefully, as uh, many listeners will know, you know we're, we're actually quite, we're, we're reasonably high profile now. You know, we've got over 10,000 followers on LinkedIn you know, I, I was just doing an interview to Bloomberg Green the other day. You know, we are we, we are we are hitting mainstream media, which is fantastic. BBC had an ex- the exclusive of the O2 doing its first power generation. You know, people are interested, but it all kind of started back with abundance. You know, we the crowd was our first effort to really spread the word, get people behind us, make people realise that tidal energy and marine energy, you know, it wasn't this far off thing. We actually had a technology that we thought was very close to commercialization. And indeed, we, we talk about the O2 being our first, you know, it is our first commercially funded project. So that was one of the, that was the, the main reason. Secondly, when you spread the risk across many, many investors, you know, one person taking 20 million pounds is difficult. The abundance raise was 7 million. You no, know, we did piece together equity 
project debt grants to get that 20 million. I mean, we, we've since raised you know, well in excess of uh, about 30, nearly 40 million actually since that point in time. But at that point, you know, it was about diversifying the risk. You know, we, we felt we had a compelling story. Other, the, the bigger investors felt we had a compelling story, but you know, not quite compelling enough to put 20 million pounds at potential at, at risk when there wasn't evidence that there'd be more turbines, more sales coming off the back of it that they might benefit from. But diversifying that across 2,300 investors, or 7 million of it, across 2,300 investors at around £2,000 each, actually, people wanted to feel that they were doing the right thing. You know, we are hugely appreciative of the support that we were given by the abundance investors. And, you know, it wasn't just small investors. Our largest investor, an individual who also invested in uh, Crowdcube, £200,000. Now, no, that's on track to make him a very healthy return. And that's good. That's what we want people to be going out and saying. We want them to be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we invested in Orbital. Yeah, <laughs> good money out of that. And they will have done. You know, it was 12%, which uh, in the scheme of things, you know, it's, it's quite expensive for us. But equally, you know, you've got to recognise the payoff against the risk profile. We did speak to institutional investors, the private equity funds that were willing to put, you know, high single figure millions in to do it, but they wanted to own the project. They wanted to take the upside benefit. And, you know, as a, as a company, Orbital has been in existence for, you know, almost two decades. Our investors deserve the upside, not somebody coming in at the last minute to give you the funding you need to do, take your next step. So while we had some fairly compelling initial offers from, from, from good, good houses, you know, good, sophisticated energy funds, actually, this was the right answer. This gave us the ability to spread the word, gave us the ability to raise the money that, you know, still relatively expensive money, but cheaper than what we were being offered by the institutions. So that was really why we went down that route. Crowdcube was very much focused more on spreading the word even further. You know, we, we raised £7 million pounds in 10 weeks. You know, that was an average of £100,000 a day from abundance. And that was only 5,000 investors that were on the platform at that point in time. You know, we brought a lot of new investors to it. But, you know, that was, that was a huge success for us and for abundance. And it really sent a signal that we were able to quote back to government, showing them that the voters, your voters, the voting public likes this. They want to see it happen. They want you to help make it happen. They're actually investing their own money in this. That's how much they want to see it happen. And of course, the we were able to extend that story with Crowdcube. More investors, lower average investment, which I think possibly, you know, I, I don't know, I've got a gut feel as to why that is. And I think that that's, uh, you know, A, there's more competition on the platform. You know, you're up against fintechs and breweries and all sorts of other, you know, great and wonderful things. But, you know, clean tech, the climate crisis, it resonates with people now more than ever. So, you know, we were able to, to capture a, a good return, uh, a good investment sum there. But I think what I possibly never realised, you know, I think I possibly believed, rightly or wrongly, that people were looking at these investments more as a, it gave them the feel-good factor. They wanted to do it because they wanted to see it happen. They wanted to play a part. They wanted to be part of the community. But I think that possibly I, I was, was not giving the investors enough credit of, for recognising the, the different characteristics of debt and equity. You know, it's no well, debt clearly is less risky. And we got bigger check sizes from individual investors. 
So I think I think actually there was a greater appreciation of the uh, the risk characteristics of debt versus equity than I'd possibly uh, anticipated at the outset. But you know it was a good experience, and, and hopefully I, I you know I, I very much believe that uh, hopefully this will play out to be a, a very lucrative investment for all of the investors that have come on board. Yeah, let's hope so, as I am one. <laughs> but, uh, but obviously, yeah, it'd be good to see that anyway. But that's really interesting because it, it wasn't just the money that you got there. It was the, the exposure as well. So that's one thing. Absolutely. And I think yeah, with Crowdcube, the other interesting thing there actually is a lot of the investments on Crowdcube are EIS and SEIS, so Enterprise Investment Scheme sort of qualify but because you're a more mature company you you obviously didn't qualify that so despite that you were still able to secure i think it was well over twice what you'd uh, originally aimed uh, to yes on. Uh, i think 2.3 million i think um it closed that yeah yeah so that's that's brilliant and abundance just uh, for anybody that's because uh, i didn't know about abundance but um i did have a, have a look uh find out a bit about them and yeah as you say they they um they focus on debenture so debt-based uh, lending or investment for something that is uh, well environmentally friendly or um yeah i think that that's the main driver isn't it sustainable sustainability and responsible yes yeah, so it's got to be societal benefit yeah so i mean they, they do housing i think they've just moved into sort of some um, you know uh, sustainable food production so there's there, there's a range but yes i mean it's all it's all to the betterment of the of the planet and society and uh, yeah as i said you know, a real Really enjoy working with the team at Abundance. They're um, um, you know, real, as I said, they're in it for all the right reasons. Yeah, good, good. So I guess that that success now starts to make you think about uh, how we're going to scale this. So that's, I guess, the next big challenge for you. You've proven the technology of generating power. That's going into the grid right now. And uh, I think in Orkney, is it powering homes uh, in Orkney? Yes, yes. so um, the O2 turbine is, uh, yes, it's powering homes in Orkney right now. We are working it up, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, it's over £10 million bit of kit, don't want to break it. <laughs> um, the uh, So, you know, there's, there's various uh, innovations which went on the SR2000, so we've got a pitch system, so we're just sort of uh, calibrating all the, the control systems. You know, I think we're up, we're up sort of around a megawatt. You know, we work up the power curve, uh, sort of bit by bit until we're at full power. It's actually bigger than two megawatts. It can generate it, I think, 2.2, uh, 2.24 megawatts. So, you know, that's, that's very exciting. You know, everything's running perfectly so far, exactly as modeled, exactly, exactly as planned. So that's really good. We do have uh, some news that, uh, unfortunately, I can't share quite yet, but there's a, there's a 2.4 megawatt turbine, which uh, we are hoping uh, might be going into construction fairly soon. I can't say too much more about that at this stage, but that's uh, that will be a very important project for us because one of the things that we're hoping that we can do with that turbine is I mentioned previously the R&D work that we're doing around reducing levelized cost of energy. So there's some, you know, phase one of that was identifying, you know, the next tranche of innovations that we can bring into the next turbine, which will effectively, you know, help us reduce that levelized cost of energy. So effectively, this 2.4 megawatt turbine could be our first commercial model that we would look to, you know, effectively roll off the conveyor belt, for want of a better term or analogy. We are optimistic, as I said previously. We are very hopeful. 
that the UK government is listening to the evidence that we're presenting. We hope that they're going to introduce market mechanism which allows us to bid in to AR4. We've contracted uh, capacity at uh, Morley's in Wales. We've got contracted capacity at uh, PTEC, the Perpetuous uh, Tidal Energy Centre uh, down at the Isle of Wight. Um, and there's other opportunities in and around Orkney. We could potentially bid up to 30 megawatts into AR4. Now, 30 megawatts, you know, you're talking at that point, you're talking you know, somewhere in the region of 150 million of capital to be deployed. You know, a mix of debt and equity. You know, that's, um, that's a big number, but there's absolutely institutional money out there looking for these types of homes. You know, there's so much competition in the offshore wind space from um, the project investors that uh, funds are, are failing to meet their investment targets. You know, there's so much competition that yields are being suppressed. And then if you go down into the project ownership itself, you know, we're seeing things like the oil majors, you know, spending huge amounts of money to, you know, force their way in to the, the offshore wind market. That's how attractive these, these sort of energy plays are for them as part of the energy transition. The only thing missing for us to be able to start to replicate that is this initial market opportunity where we can actually start to deploy these projects. Now, this is, as you said, scaling up. You know, as an organization, we will need to scale up. And indeed, you know, what we might have to do and indeed what we will be doing, uh, you know, we will be going out and we're probably going to be running a process uh, during the back half of this year that we're just away to open fairly soon. You know, it, it, it's not just about finding the money. It's about finding the right money, the right investor. So, you know, projects, you know, winning an AR4 auction, our CEO, Andrew, says this, um, you know, it's absolutely true. Winning an auction round, winning a bid for AR4, is that's not success. That's a stepway on the path to success. Delivering the project on time and on budget and delivering that, then delivering that with operations successfully, that's success. That's what we need to do next. So we need the government to give us that opportunity by creating that ring fence. We will then bid and hopefully bid successfully into that auction round. But what we what we are probably looking for at this stage is uh, an investor or combination of investors that can bring probably two key things. Something that reduces project execution risk. So, you know, this could be the type of organization that uh, is active in offshore markets, that is active in deploying offshore projects in places like the North Sea or elsewhere globally, so that they can bring the, the experience, the project management experience of, you know, bigger builds, bigger manufacturing processes, you know, multiple turbines being built at once. You know, all of that, that skill set, you know, we can develop it. We've got it. We don't have enough of it. We'll need to build more, organically grow. But the right partner could bring all of that to the table and, and save us the time of having to generate it internally. That would be a big plus. The funding itself, you know, there there is still going to be, it's not going to be, fully commercial funding at this stage. We anticipate that we will have to own the early projects because we understand the risks the best. You know, a third-party developer is going to come in and they'd be wanting a warranty from the OEM. We're a small company at this stage. We cannot offer a warranty for a 10-megawatt project. We will need to own it ourselves to start with. 
we will share the data with the, uh, the insurance community so that the insurance community can start to understand the risks. They can start to characterize those risks. And importantly, they can price those risks so that they can introduce the types of contractual suites uh, around level uh, loss of profits insurance or business interruption. And once we've got the, the, the contractual protections that third-party developers need, that's when commercial banks can come in and offer normal standard debt. And that's when the market, that's when it becomes a very conventional market. But we believe that Orbital has a role to play in driving it there. We understand our technology. We can understand the risks of owning and running and operating our technology. So we believe that we will probably have significant, if not significant ownership stakes in these early projects until that quantum of empirical data is out there to allow the wider market to become familiar and to become comfortable with it just being an, a, yet another power generation market. So, you know, the, the, the pathway is there. Uh, we are willing to drive Orbital and its technology down that pathway. And, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure we won't be the only technology. I'm sure there will be others. But, you know, we are willing to drive at the forefront of this market. But we do need that early stage market um, mechanism put in place to allow us to do so. I said, just going back, I mean, the, the, the funding, you know, big, big quantums of money. I do think there's there's a number of institutions, uh, you know, certainly with the refocus uh, or new focus on ESG, I do think that there's um, funders out there that would be willing to, to support early stage commercialization like this. You know, at the end of the day, after the first, uh, you know, once we've got a couple of turbines in the water, we get them certified by people like DNV, that type of thing. Ideally, you want to have them in a couple of locations. You don't want, uh, you know, you want to prove that they can be operated in uh, different environments and conditions. Once you've sort of de-risked the technology, it is just the market. If there's a market there and there's a, an appropriate IRR that can be made, there's a whole host of funders out there that are looking for just that type of opportunity. So, you know, this is the time to make that happen. Well, I think you're well on the way to, to de-risking and hopefully there may be a, a few people listening here who uh, fit the bill <laughs> in terms of uh, those kind of investors. And uh, we'll certainly have your LinkedIn details on the show notes for this so that people can get in touch. So, yeah, that's, well, what a story. Let's just round things up with, with we like to, to finish with a bit about, um, you know, your career advice, if you like, and, and advice to, to CFOs or what, what, what your focus is over the next few months. So, first of all, uh, do you have any advice for anybody that's keen on getting into the renewable energy field in finance? Well, well I suppose wider advice is, is, you know, find something that you, you genuinely have a, a degree of passion about. You know, it's... Uh, being a CFO of any organization, you know, it ain't a nine to five. It's demanding. You will go through periods of uh, sleepless nights and stress. That's kind of part of the gig. So you need to feel it's worthwhile. You absolutely need to feel it's worthwhile and it's a worthwhile use of your time. So that, that, that's, that's the first thing. I mean, renewable energy in, in particular, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's just a must. You know, it's not going to be renewable energy for too much longer. It's just going to be energy. Because everything needs to become renewable. You know, it, it will take a bit of time, but um, it is the way forward. So it very much depends on the individual. You know, people that have different strengths. You know, there's a number of big utilities in the UK where you can maybe sort of get a, you know, a grounding and maybe study support. But I suppose for the more entrepreneurial ones uh, and individuals out there that are willing to take a bit more of a risk, you know, there's no shortage of startups 
you need to be alive to the risks that uh, come with being in a in a startup or a, a pre-revenue or technology development company. Uh, cash is king, whether you're a big utility, or, but particularly if you're a pre-revenue company. And you know that will bring with it some challenges. But uh, find something that you enjoy. Find people that you enjoy working with and you know, put the work in. You only get back what you put into it, just like everything else in life. You know, try your best not to say no to things. Say yes. Do things. Challenge yourself. Very few things aren't rewarding. Uh, not everything works out the way you thought it would, but you, the, the, the old saying's true. You've, you're far more likely to regret not doing something than doing something. So put yourself out there. And uh, in terms of what you'll be focusing on over the next six, 12 months and, and then perhaps in the next five-year time frame, those sort of things, what is it you'll be focusing on? Have you got anything that you would uh, recommend others are looking at as well? Well, I mean, um, you know, for me, the, the focus is orbital and the orbital journey, the orbital mission. For us, yeah, I would imagine the next 12 months for me is going to be fairly full on in terms of fundraising, hopefully raising around £150 million if everything goes well. And effectively, you know, scaling the business up, you know, readying the business to deliver these early projects. You know, what happens after that is, um, you know, is, is unknown at this point. You know, there's various options. My preference, if I'm honest, uh, you know, clearly if you speak to uh, investment banks, it's all, well, you know, you could do an IPO, you could do this, that. I think there's still a phase for Orbital and a phase for the tidal energy sector where, you know, I think private ownership with uh, a strategic owner who can help drive the commercialization a little bit faster because they understand the challenges. They, you know, they're bought in to the value that they can create by driving that market faster. Uh, so for me, the next, uh, I would imagine the next sort of couple of years is going to be trying to uh, find that right partner, find that right investment solution, and uh, hopefully make tidal energy a, a feature in global energy mixes around the world. Well, that would certainly be brilliant to see, and I'm, I'm wishing you every luck with that. I, it's something, like I say, I, uh, I wrote a school project about 40 years ago um, about uh, tidal energy and how wonderful it was, and uh, it's, uh, it's taken a long time to get to the point where it looks like it might be uh, a winner, but uh, I think you're on the right path. So, Chris, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for uh, for all of that, and I'm sure... That will be a great interest to all of our listeners. So thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Stephen. And uh, thank you to everybody who's listened. Much appreciated. And as Stephen said, you know, please do follow us on uh, Follow Orbital on all of our social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, the various usual sources. And feel free to reach out to myself if there's anything that you think might be of interest. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. As always, we're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode. So please get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk with any feedback. If you want to find out more about Chris, take a look at the show notes for a link to his LinkedIn profile. And if you'd like to learn more about Orbital Marine Power, have a look at their website, orbitalmarine.com. You can find a link to that in the show notes as well. Why not subscribe to the podcast or register on the podcast page of our website to hear about new episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemertas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. 
But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.